If you're here for the first time, I'd like to give you a special shout out, especially those who are worshiping with us, with us online. Welcome. I don't want to... I don't want to start with uh, the negative, but if you've been following the news, there was a war that broke out since Saturday uh, up to now, and it's been intensifying ever since. My wife and I have been following this news uh, since Saturday. There's been a war between Israel and Hamas. It's not Israel and Gaza, but Israel and Hamas. And a lot of lives have been taken, homes are destroyed, and many casualties we have right now reported on the news. Uh, is this con does this concern us? Um, I, I would think so, because there are so many protests going on in, in Paris, in London, in New York. Here in Florida, we have as well between the Jews and the Palestinians. So if you're asking, Pastor, what's our position on this? How do we respond to, to this conflict? I would say that first and foremost, Apostle Paul said that the real battle, the real enemy, is not against flesh and blood, but against powers, principalities, against dominions. There are evil forces controlling and manipulating the world. That is the real enemy. Our calling, brothers and sisters, is for peace. Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers. We're supposed to be peacemakers. We're supposed to hunger and thirsty for righteousness, sake, and justice. That's what we should be aiming for. So we should not be divided over the conflict between Palestinians and Israelites. We're aiming for peace. And what we can do right now is to pray for everyone, pray for the families of those who have been affected by this war. This is the best that we can do to intercede to God for them on their behalf. Now, we are now on the third part of our series about sacrifices. We're talking about the book of Leviticus. Now, two weeks ago, we talked about the burnt offering. It's called Ola. It's not the Spanish version of hi, hello. In Hebrew, Ola means burnt offering. It's when the whole animal is sacrificed on the altar before the Lord. It's a commitment and devotion type of offering before the Lord. Last week, we talked about another offering. It's called grain offering. It's called minka. Okay, that means uh, if you cannot afford bull or sheep or goat, if you are poor, at least you can afford grains. Grain or grain offering is the best that you can give to God if you are poor. That means nobody is out of range. Everyone can have an access to God if they give an offering. Even the poor can have an access to God through grain offering. Today I want to talk to you about shalamim. There's another offering that's called shalamim. This offering, for whatever reason that you've been reading your Bibles, this offering can have a lot of, uh, a lot of titles, a lot of terms that is used. But shalamim is a sacrifice to God. So what is shalamim? What is this? How is it significant? And what has this got to do with my faith? I want to start by reading the first verse of Leviticus chapter 3. If you have your Bibles with you, iPads, iPhones, whatever you have, or you can follow the screen along, you can read with me Leviticus chapter 3, verse 1. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. It says, If his offering is a sacrifice of peace offering, if he offers an animal from the herd, male or female, he shall offer it without blemish before the Lord. 
Now, that's the English Standard Version. Let me offer you the New International Version for comparison. It says, if your offering is a fellowship offering, it's different, right? So the English Standard Version is peace offering, but the NIV says it's a fellowship offering. So just in case if you're wondering what's the difference here, see, our English Bibles are mere translations from the original Hebrew. In Hebrew, there are four consonants. It's S-H-L-M. There are no vowels in the original Hebrew. So there are a lot of words that fit in the category. One of those words, S-H-L-M, is shalom. That's why the English Standard Version says peace offering. But here's the thing. The English Standard Version is more word-for-word translation. It's more formal. It's more literal. That's why the SHLM is translated as Shalom, peace offering. But the NIV says fellowship offering. The NIV is more dynamic, more contemporary. So the SHLM also can be read as Shalamim. And the scholars are in agreement that this should be called Shalamim because... Because it has nothing to do with sin. That's the, the key here. Now, I'm going to be a little bit more technical here. This is not your cue to take a nap. Okay? Just a little bit more technical for you nerds out there. When you're reading Hebrew, the word contains S-H-L-M. S-H-L-M is shalamim. That's because the intention of the sacrifice was not for the peace the way we understand it. So when we talk about when you hear the word peace offering, immediately what comes to mind is, it, is that there is trouble, there's sin. That's why we have to offer God a peace offering, right? Now, when couples fight and smoke disappears, we raise a white flag symbolically to say cease fire or surrender, right? So the husband would maybe buy flowers and chocolates and give something as a peace offering, Correct? The wife would probably cook a meal, a dinner, as her way of saying also peace offering. That's how we understand peace offering. But this has nothing to do with sin. This peace offering has nothing to do with any conflict between God and the offerer. This is called shelamim because shelamim is just simply an offering. This is a type of offering where when you are invited for dinner, you bring something for sharing. It's not because you want to make amends. It's because you want to share something, shalamim, an offering or a gift. So instead of calling it peace offering, let's go with the NIV and call it fellowship offerings. It makes sense to us. Let's continue with verse 2. It says, He shall lay his hand on the head of his offering and kill it at the entrance of the tent of the meeting. Aaron's sons, the priest, shall throw the blood against the sides of the altar, and from the sacrifice of the peace offering as food to the Lord. He shall offer the fat covering the entrails and all the fat that is on the entrails, and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them at the loins, and the long lobe of the liver, liver that he shall remove with the kidneys. Then Aaron's son shall burn it on the altar on top of the burnt offering which is on the fire, on the fire, on the wood on the fire. It is a food offering with a pleasing aroma to God. Now, this passage mentioned the fat three times. Now, what is, what is important here is the kidneys, the liver, and the fats. Now, 
The reason for the laying of hand is not just like what we talked about in atonement sacrifice or in Yom Kippur, Leviticus 16. There's no transferring of sin in here because, again, there's no sin involved in here. So when a person lay his hand on the animal to be given as a fellowship offering, he's like putting his signature on the animal. He's saying, this is mine. Please, Lord, don't forget this is mine and I'm giving it to you. All right, this is just simply a source of identifying of ownership. The laying of hands has no, nothing to do with the transfer of guilt like Yom Kippur. That's a separate sacrifice. Let me introduce you to this fat. So when you butcher a cow or a sheep, the kidneys and the liver are surrounded by fat. It's technically called suet. Anyone seen that before? Anyone have butchered anything? All right, it's called suet. It's a huge chunk of fatty substance available for either cooking, making candles, or making soap. You can actually eat it right away. So if you love steaks, what you do is you put tallow on it, correct, on top of it. Tallow is rendered fat. So when you, say, fry, uh, say, pork uh, skin, and it becomes crunchy, it becomes chicharron, the fat that, that goes out of it, when you cool it, it becomes tallow. That's what you put on top of your steak. The, the suet is the rendered fat. It becomes tallow when you use it. But the Bible was very specific about this fat. This is not the fat, if you like, you know, ribeye steaks. This is not the fat in the marbling of your ribeye steaks. We, we cannot do that. This is very specific to the fat that surrounds the kidneys and the liver. Look at me. Look at with me at uh, chapter 3, verse 16, because the, the Bible was very specific about this. It says, And the priest shall burn them on the altar as a food offering with a pleasing aroma. Now watch this. All fat is the Lord's. All right? All fat is the Lord's. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwelling places that you eat neither fat nor blood. The Jews are forbidden to eat fat or blood. Why? Because blood symbolizes life. You cannot take life. You cannot eat life. The fat symbolizes the richness of the animal, the best of what you can get from that animal. Therefore, it is given to the Lord. That's why if the fat and the blood is off, are both offered to the Lord. Now, why in the world are kidneys, the liver, and fat offered on the altar? Why is this the Lord's portion? Is it because God has a different culinary taste? He likes the taste of kidneys and liver and fat? Now, the obvious answer is no. We already established that God doesn't eat. He doesn't have to eat. God is self-sufficient. God is spirit. He doesn't eat. So what is this offering about kidneys and liver for? This is all about symbolism. Have you heard of the phrase or the song, Praise the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord, O my soul. And all that is within me, bless his holy name. What is the, what's the meaning of the phrase, and all that is within me? What is in all that is within me? You see, in the ancient world, the liver and the kidneys are considered, considered to be the seat of emotions. The seat of the emotions is not the brain or the heart although we usually refer to the heart every Valentine's Day, but the seat of emotions in the ancient world, as they understand it, lies in the kidneys and the liver. 
All right. L let me prove to you that this is the case. You know, if you fell in love before one time, and for those who are married, I hope you're still in love. Yes? Okay. So, if you fell in love or you're still in love, why do we say, I feel some butterflies on my stomach? Why not butterflies in my head or butterflies in my chest? Why butterflies in the stomach? You see, when you are nervous or excited, when you ride a roller coaster, there's something that you feel in your belly, correct? Because the seat of emotions is in here, the liver and the kidneys. So in the ancient world, the soul of an animal is with the kidneys and the liver. That's why it is offered to God. And therefore, if it symbolizes the soul of the one who offers, the kidneys and the liver symbolize the soul of the one who offers the animal. It's not the literal smell that pleases God because it says it's a pleasing aroma to God. See, when you offer fat, which is the, the best of the animal, and the kidneys and the liver, which means you're offering the best of yourself to God, it becomes a pleasing aroma to God. It's not the smell of the burning meat. It's the thought of the unblemished self that we offer to God, that we give the best to God. It makes it a pleasing aroma to God. There's an addendum in chapter 7. The right thigh of the animal and the breast goes to the priests. Now, why is that? This is called the Levitical portion. This is how the priests in the Old Testament are fed. So that means also that when the people do not give or sacrifice to God, the priests go hungry. Are you still with me? So that means if the people are grateful and the people want to worship God, they bring animal sacrifices and the priests are fed with the thighs and the breasts. This is how we also operate in church. The monetary gifts that you give to the church is how our ministry flourish. When you don't give gifts, the, the pastor is forced to lose weight. <laughs> you see, it's God's design for the church to thrive through our generosity, and our generosity should come from gratitude. And as much as it is our obligation to give, God wants us to give out of gratitude. Here's an idea. Why do we have to give? Why, is, why do we have to give? Is, is saying thank you not enough? Why can't we just say to God, thank you every day and not give? No, there's a very simple answer to that. The fellowship offering, according to Leviticus chapter 3, when we offer to God the best, the kidney, the liver, and the fat, the Bible said it becomes a pleasing aroma to God. It pleases God. See, this simple act, this simple gesture, this simple token can please God. I mean, we don't have to dance and dance crazy and sing, etc. This simple act of sacrifice can actually please God. It is not perfect, it is not enough, but it can please God. Here's another idea. Why do we celebrate birthdays? Why do we give gifts? And why do we wrap them before we give them? Why not just say happy birthday, goodbye, that's it? Why do we have to give gifts? For the simple reason, again, because we want to please the celebrant. We want to share in the celebration of her day or his day. You see, in the same way, we give to God because we are grateful, because we know that when we give to God, we please Him. There's this intrinsic desire to please God. 
You know, every children have their intrinsic desire to please their parents. I have two kids. They're, they're always, you know, fighting for attention. They want to please me. So I feel so privileged. And same thing with us and God. God is pleased when we want to please Him, and He's pleased when we desire to please Him. There's another important thing about this sacrifice. Leviticus chapter 7, verse 15 says, And the flesh of the sacrifice of His peace offerings for thanksgiving shall be eaten on the day of His offering. He shall not leave any of it until the morning. But if the sacrifice of His offering is a vow offering or free will offering, it shall be eaten on the day that he offers his sacrifice, and on the next day, what remains of it shall be eaten. Now, what is this talking about? Now, what this means is that the offer offers to God the kidneys and the liver and the fat that belongs to God. The offerer gives the breast and the right thigh to the priest that belongs to the priests. Now, everything else is given back to the offerer to eat with his family. So when you present an offering to the temple, the whole animal, maybe a cow, the majority of the cow goes back to you for eating, for fellowship. And the Bible said that you have to eat it within the confines of the holy ground. So imagine this for a second. Outside the tabernacle, there are picnic tables where families eat together because God shares the animal with them. Instead of God consuming all the animal in the altar, He's sharing it with the people who offered it. It's like a big picnic table outside the tabernacle. It's like, you know, what we're doing in church. The NIV says it's a fellowship offering. That's why it's called fellowship offering. Because we are, the Israelites are, have fellowship with God when they share the meal. You know, we have this contemporary English version for that. It's called potluck. That's what we do. We bring food. We shared the food with each other. See, that word potluck comes from the 16th century uh, terminology that, that refers to bringing food in case there are unexpected guests that come. So they have something to eat too. So this fellowship offering refers to a shared meal between the people and God. This is beautiful, you see. But most of the time, I think, some people outside the church would think that all that God does is to accept offering. And God is selfish. All that he wants is to be sacrificed. I actually think it's the exact opposite on this issue. Because in this case, only the kidneys and the liver and the fat belongs to God. I mean, that's a very small portion of the animal. The thighs and the, the, the breast belongs to the priest. A small portion as well. But the rest of the animal will go back to the people to eat. So people who criticize the church think that all along we are doing business in the church or we're scamming people. They don't understand that we're giving it to, to God. I mean, I can blame them for, for thinking that because some preachers take advantage and instead of preaching the gospel, they preach prosperity with a catch. Listen, if you attend a church and the preacher tells you to write a $500 check because God will return it tenfold, you run away as quick as you can. That's not the gospel. The gospel is not to be bought. But what exactly does it mean to share the meal with God? What exactly does it mean to be eating in the presence of God as God's honored guests? You see, there's an ancient prophecy in the book of Isaiah that talks about a grand banquet. 
Now, we like parties, right? Especially Filipinos. We love to attend parties. We like to, you know, suit up. There's an ancient prophecy about this ancient banquet, about this grand banquet. And Prophet Isaiah had a vision of this one. In his vision also, he talked about the destruction of the earth before he talked about this grand banquet. Let me read to Isaiah 24, verse 1. It says, Behold, the Lord will empty the earth and make it desolate. He's talking about the earth. And he will twist its surface and scatter its inhabitants. The earth lies defiled under its inhabitants, for they have transgressed the laws, violated statutes, broken the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse devours the earth, and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are scorched, and few men are left. This is horrifying when you're reading this. It kind of reminds me of Gaza right now. Hospitals are are full, the morgues are full, the casualties keep rising. There are men, women, children are left homeless if not dead. See, according to reports, almost an average of 700 missiles are fired from Gaza to Israel. And of course, in retaliation, Israel will fire missiles as well. And so there's lots of devastation in Gaza right now. There's no electricity, there's no water, there's no food now in Gaza. There's an estimate of about 5,000 people are now dead on both sides. But what Isaiah saw in the vision was the devastation, not just of a very small parcel of land, but the whole earth. He saw a terrifying picture of the whole earth, like a worldwide holocaust, where people are, there's no way to escape. So some people, when they read this, they think it's World War III. I don't know if you're following the news, but there's a lot of networks that are predicting future prophecies that talked about a possibility of World War III. Some also say that this might be a worldwide catastrophic event. Isaiah 24 verse 1. But then Isaiah did not just see the devastation of the earth, he also saw something else. He also saw that God will host a feast on a mountain. Let me read to you. Isaiah 25, verse 6. And in this mountain will Jehovah of hosts make unto all peoples a feast of fat things. It's kind of interesting. We're talking about fats. A feast of wines on the lease, a fat things full of marrow, of wines on the lease, well refined. But what is Isaiah talking about? You see, the only way there could be a celebration, a banquet, is, is after the war. That means after the vision of the destruction of the earth, God will come to rescue and he will set up a table and everybody will be invited. There will be a great banquet. And yet Isaiah was focusing us on the idea of richness, fat things, feast of wine on the lease. Now, in Hebrew, it's more poetic. It would say, which literally means feast of fatness and feast of the best wine. When we're talking about wine on the lease, we're not talking about your Syrah or your, your uh, Merlot. We're talking about the, the full-bodied wine, the Cabernet Sauvignon. This is the best wine. And we're, we're talking about the Feast of Fatness. We're talking about suddenly about the suet, the one that you offer to God, the best of what's in the animal. 
see, see here's the thing. In Leviticus chapter 3, we offer to God the best. But in this great banquet, God offers to us the best. God is giving back the best for us. But it doesn't end with food and celebration. Isaiah 25 verse 8 says, The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. This is like a signature where the judge you know, hammers his gavel and say, that's it. The Lord has spoken. He will take away the people's disgrace. What is this people's disgrace? Now, the Jewish literal interpretation to this is, is, say, is saying that the disgrace refers to the defeat of the Israelites when the Babylonians attacked and destroyed the temple in 586 BC. Consequently, the Romans came again, destroyed the temple, burned the whole temple in 70 AD. Now, here's the irony of things. Israel became a state again in 1948. They were given that, that uh, parcel of land in 1948. But Israel, until today, has not yet fully taken the land back. What they're occupying right now is just 70% of their original inhabitation. The West Bank is not theirs. The Gaza Strip is not theirs. They're not even controlling the site of the original temple. You know, they can pray in, uh, in the Wailing Wall, but they cannot go to Al-Aqsa where the original temple of Solomon was built. They do not, do not control it. So that means they have not been fully disrestored. And the Orthodox, Orthodox Jews are saying that for Israel to be fully restored, there are three things. Number one, the third temple must be rebuilt. That's why a lot of Jews now, today, are preparing to rebuild the third temple. They're trying to fight uh, against the Palestinians over the right to rebuild the third temple on the original site where the Al-Aqsa Mosque is uh, standing. The second uh, qualification is that sacrifice must be reinstituted. And then they say the Messiah will come and he will rule and defeat the enemies. Now here's the thing. Could it be possible that the Messiah already came? Could it be possible that the third temple was already rebuilt and all the sacrifices were reinstituted? Could it be possible that all that happened and the Jewish nation missed it? See, a week before Jesus was executed, he entered Jerusalem on a donkey. We all know that. We call that triumphal entry. We celebrate that. We call it Palm Sunday. But what exactly happened on a Palm Sunday? The Gospel of Luke says that when he entered Jerusalem for the last time, officially, before he even entered that place, Jesus wept. There are only two instances in the Bible where Jesus wept, one with Lazarus and second here. Jesus wept. I mean, you don't read in the Bible, Jesus laughed. Anyone? I haven't also, but I'm sure Jesus might have cracked a joke or something with his disciples. But there's a very specific passage where it says Jesus wept. Luke 19.41, this is what it says. When he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. Saying, what would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace? 
but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your family within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. It sounds like Isaiah 24, is it? It sounds like the devastation of the whole earth. You see, here Jesus was prophesying about the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. But what is this kind of visitation? What is he talking about? You see, 700 years before Jesus, Isaiah already prophesied. Yahweh will come to rescue. He will come in person. He will visit His people. He will bind their wounds and He will restore them. Take away the disgrace. Isaiah prophesied 700 years before Jesus Christ. This is what exactly Isaiah said. Isaiah 40 verse 3, he said, A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. God is coming. Yahweh is coming back to Israel. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. This is very specific. God will be coming through the desert to enter Israel just like how they did it. After Exodus, from Egypt, they crossed the Red Sea, they traversed the wilderness and entered the promised land through the wilderness. God will be doing the same thing. Pay attention, Isaiah said, prepare the way of God, make straight the desert, the highway of God. The question is, has this been fulfilled? When is this fulfilled? You see, all the four Gospels tell us that Jesus, before He started this ministry, spent 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness. And then He entered the Promised Land. Are you seeing this? Isaiah was prophesying this Messiah God will be coming from the wilderness to enter and visit His people. All the four Gospels were talking about Isaiah, prepare the way of Yahweh. So as Jesus enters the Jerusalem city one last time, He wept because people were so blind, they did not see. God has already come and visited them. They were so blind, they were looking for another Messiah. They disregarded Jesus. There were only two people who recognized Jesus, an outsider. Pilate was a Roman governor. He was the one who put the inscription on the top of the cross of Jesus, I-N-R-I, Jesus Nazarenos Rex Yedorum, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. He recognized Jesus. And there's another one. There was a Roman centurion at the foot of the cross. He saw and witnessed the horrific execution of Jesus. And when Jesus died, he said, Truly, this was the Son of God. The Jews were so blind, they did not see. God has already visited them. So if the coming of the Messiah involves rebuilding the temple and the reinstitution of the sacrifices and the defeat of the enemy, the question is, how did Jesus fulfill it? How was Jesus the fulfillment of what they were waiting for? What did Jesus say at the beginning of his ministry? Destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up again. He was talking about the temple. He was talking about the third temple. Destroy this second temple, and in three days, I will raise it up again. He claims to have the ability to raise the temple. And in short, three days. And how did it happen? He resurrected from the dead. And the disciples understood 
that he was talking about his body, not the physical temple, not with the stones and bricks, but his flesh. He was called Emmanuel. God is with us. God has literally dwelled in the flesh of Jesus Christ. He is the third temple. And the people of Israel, Israel missed it. When was the reinstitution of, of the sacrifices? See, the moment Jesus started his ministry, he went to John the Baptist to be baptized. And what did John say? Behold the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. He was the ultimate sacrifice. And on the cross, he sacrificed himself. He became the end of all sacrifices. And what did the Bible say about this sacrifice? A pleasing aroma to God. Therefore, in the cross, on the cross, he reinstituted the sacrifices by sacrificing one last time, the final time. Question now is, when will Isaiah's great feast will become a reality? When is this great feast of fats and fine wine become a reality? When is this biggest gathering of fellowship? You see, Jesus said in Matthew 5, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. But Apostle John had a different version of this beatitude. He wrote this in his vision, Revelation chapter 19, verse 9. The angel appeared to him and said to him, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is the great banquet that Isaiah was talking about, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Listen, the biggest celebration ever is this marriage supper. It's called the fellowship offering. In Leviticus chapter 3, it's called Shalamim. And this Shalamim points to the last supper of Jesus Christ. Where Jesus said, I will not drink again of this cup until the kingdom of God is fulfilled. So Jesus Christ was looking forward to a great banquet where he will drink again wine. When is this? Isaiah 25. This is the great banquet of the marriage supper of the Lamb. The marriage supper is the metaphor for the gathering of the saints in the kingdom of God where the church will finally meet with God. So you might be saying, all right, pastor, I get it. There's a huge celebration somewhere in the future. But what are we going to do right now? What are we going to do while waiting for, for that great banquet? You see, Abraham called Yahweh Jireh. See, on the mountain, God called Abraham to offer his son, his only son, the son that he loves. He has two sons, by the way, Isaac and Ishmael, but he loved Isaac, his, his original son. And God asked him, offer your son. But at the last minute, when he was about to kill his son, God intervened. God said, stop, you don't have to. I know what you will do. I know that you want to please me. So Isaac was spared. Abraham was spared as well from the humiliation. God intervened. And so Abraham says, Yahweh is Jireh. What does it mean? God sees. And because God sees, He provides. Because God sees, He provides. What does it mean? It, it's because God is watching all along. From the time He left His house, to the time He entered Mount Moriah, to the time He was about to kill His son, God was watching. God sees. That's why Abraham called him literally Jireh, provider. God sees and therefore he will provide. Exactly what happened. When God said stop, God provided a ram. 
the ram is an Allah is like a burnt offering. So all along Abraham might be thinking he's offering the best only to find out God needs nothing from him. God needs nothing from us. There's nothing that we can offer to God that, that we can say, I have offered you the best and everything. This is worthy of you. God will also say, I don't need it, but I'm pleased because it's the thought that counts. You want to please me. That, what's, that's what matters. You see, most of the time, we think that when we go through difficult circumstances, we're alone. And sometimes we feel like God doesn't understand our circumstances. God doesn't understand our pains. He doesn't care. He doesn't understand that we're almost giving up because life is hard. But before you believe this lie, ask yourself, do you seriously think that God will ever take off his attention from the apple of his eye? I'm talking about you. You are now apple of God's eye. Do you seriously think that after dying for you, Jesus would just neglect you because he's busy with something else? Like how we are busy with scrolling our cell phones? Do you really think that he's neglecting you? After all that he said, he loves you. For God so loved the world that he gave his son. It's impossible. You see, God is Jaira. God sees you where you are. God knows what you're going through. God knows what we are going through. And because He sees, He provides. So we can say for me, God is enough. More than enough. Beloved, if you love, if you have God, you have everything. Come on, let's all stand together. Let's declare that God is enough. More than enough for every one of us.